You're listening to The Media Narrative. I'm Rob Hoschel. In her book, The Fact of a Body, A Murder and a Memoir, Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich writes about the contradictions around the case of a convicted murderer, Ricky Langley. After learning about Langley's crimes, she finds herself confronting her feelings about the law and the ways this exploration connected with her own past. In our conversation, just after the book came out in 2017, she talks, among other topics, about the death penalty, family secrets, and the challenge of constructing a story whose characters sometimes respond very differently to the same set of facts. I'm here with the author Alexandria Marzano-Lesnovich, whose tremendous first book is out titled The Fact of a Body. Alexandria, thanks so much for taking the time for conversation today. Thank you for having me here. Absolutely. Well, the book is fantastic. It's gripping and suspenseful, haunting. The writing is unadorned, honest. So congratulations. Um, I want to mention to listeners that you and I first met years ago when we were both graduate students in the MFA program at Emerson College here in Boston. And I feel very privileged to have been in a workshop and had the chance to read early drafts of the work that eventually led to this book. So back then it was immediately clear that you had a great talent for writing and storytelling and difficult subject matter. I'm wondering how much of a sense you had back then that this would become a book that's getting so much attention in 2017. (laughs) Uh, None. Oh God, none. Um, And I think that in a way that was a gift that I had no sense of that because if I had understood where I would need to go in this book and how much, how many difficult things I would need to think about and how much of a kind of colossal endeavor it would be to figure out how to put this much material because the book moves back in time over many, many years and, and it's written off of so many pages of legal records, but also so many tricky things in my own life. If I had understood what I would need to put together and still make it like a page turner, which was my goal, um, I think I would have been quite intimidated. So there's this beautiful blindness that comes into play in writing where you can just work on what you're working on and you can't see where it's going, but you trust that. So that's sort of what I was doing at that stage. I was writing into some of the emotions of the past, but I didn't yet have the material that this book is written from. When I think about those days at Emerson, I, I had been in the program and then you came into the program after me because I it took me a million years to get through the program. That was my own problem. But here you were a lawyer, a, a woman with a law degree in this program. And I was wondering, why is she in this program? What is she uh, all about? And so there's an answer to this question to a degree in in the prologue of the book. And if I may just read these three sentences really quickly, the job of the law is to figure out the source of the story to assign responsibility. The proximate cause is the one the law says truly matters. The one that makes the story what it is. This is a theme you return to often in the book, how the job of a lawyer is to tell a story that the rest of us might view as the truth. How does this dynamic play out in the stories you're telling in this book? So I went to grad school for fiction. I originally enrolled in Emerson as a fiction writer. And one of the things I loved about the program was that it let you take classes in different genres. And I have always written a lot of fiction. I've always read a lot of fiction. And so I really, at that point, wasn't connecting those two things, law and storytelling. It was more that I thought I was going to go do a PhD in social science afterwards. And I wasn't ready to spend my whole life on the death penalty. I wanted to get to my love of fiction for a while and then go do it. PhD. And a funny thing happened along the way, (laughs) which is that when you're writing a lot, 
your obsessions perkle up. You know, they, they percolate, they become, you have to tap into your subconscious and that shows you what's haunting you. And so I found myself writing about the past in my family, but I also found these details from this case creeping into my writing. So the color blue, which show up in my fiction a lot, and the little boy who was murdered, um, Jeremy Guillory, Ricky Lingley wrapped his body in a blue blanket afterwards with the taste of Dick Tracy on it. Um... So that would pop up. Um, other elements of my memory of being exposed to this case uh, through this confession videotape that was my first introduction to it, they would they would pop up. And I started to become aware during the program that um, I couldn't remember the murderer's name. I could remember everything else, but I couldn't remember the murderer's name. And so it was that more than anything else that made me start to realize that there was something happening on a subterranean level. The idea that this had to do with storytelling and the law really didn't arrive until much, much later. Um, it actually didn't arrive until I got the court records because it was in reading them after having all that training in Emerson uh, and reading so many stories for that, that then in reading these records, I was a bit like, oh, my God, I'm reading different stories about this one core event. I'm reading people telling the story different ways. And I had been aware of that in law school because my love of cases was really about my love of stories. I noticed reading case law that I was always interested in the quote unquote wrong things. I was always interested in the details of the people. I was always interested in everything that the law tried to leave out of the narrative. Um, and so I sort of knew that that, over, that overlap was there, but I very much didn't understand how much what I was chasing after was this conception of storytelling in the law. It's funny. I don't, Remember, I was I was a nonfiction writer in the program, so I remember reading mostly nonfiction of yours. Have you continued to work on the fiction since mm -hmm. grad school? A little bit, not as much, um, mostly because my life became consumed by this book. Right. I wrote many, 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 many hundreds of pages that did not make it into this book. Um, and a weird quirk of it is though is that though I've been, I usually say I've been working on it. You know, to clarify, I say the idea was ten years in the making, but. Um, this conception of it has been in play for seven years. So it started post-MFA. Um, but despite the fact that I've been working on it for that long and generating hundreds and hundreds of pages, about half the actual text of the book was written in the last year before I turned it into the publisher. Mm. So that's a long-winded way of saying there hasn't been a heck of a lot of time to work on as much other stuff as I would like. But I have written, I tend to write short stories to explore themes that aren't quite possible to explore in the book. Mm but that are related in some way. Yeah, it tends to be a space where I work out something that's troubling me. Hmm. So, for example, uh, Ricky Langley seems to slide in and out of awareness of who he is as a pedophile. And at times it really torments him, but at times he doesn't seem to have that awareness. And that got me to thinking how terrible it must be to be, as we all are in some way, but that's an extreme example, to be trapped by who you are. Hmm. And so that had me writing fiction stories about that, for example. To try to understand that conceptually, yeah. Let's talk about the structure of the yes. book. Uh, my take, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, there are three central narrative braids of the story. Your, or the murder and its aftermath, your personal and family history, and your quest for truths and resonances about both of those strands. Does that sound about right? Absolutely, although I would say that it's not just the aftermath of the murder, because in Ricky Langley's life, I ended up going back in time to before he was born and, and right. also looking at his life in that context. Right. So, yeah. yeah, so absolutely. If we expand the murder to 
think about Ricky Langley and who he is and all that. Which makes complete sense. Yes. Okay. Thank you for that. So as a result, the structure is fairly complicated. You jump around in time quite a bit. But to me and many others, clearly, it makes complete sense. It's easy to follow. And in in my mind, the structure makes everything land with that much more force. So, Alexandria, how in the heck (laughs) did you pull this off? How did you arrive at this particular structure? Time, so much time, a lot, a lot of time, um, a lot of time, and a lot of short forms. So, I knew pretty early on that the stories would have to be braided, and then what that braiding would look like. I went through many different versions of. Um, it really helped me once I had almost all the research at that point. Um, it helped me to do a freeform map of how I saw them being connected, not trying to write to a strict outline. So there's this exercise in a book called Now Write Nonfiction, edited by Sherry Ellis, where Guy Talese maps out how he wrote the story Frank Sinatra had a cold, has a cold. Um, And that mapping exercise was actually super helpful to me. And then I put it away because it showed me the the loose associations. I was like, okay, I think what I start to understand is that the loose associations of how my mind is putting this together is actually an integral part of the structure. And if I'm showing you... Vivian Gornick in the situation in the story has this amazing line that in memoir, to the greatest extent, the way the narrator sees things is the thing being seen. So I understood that that had to be an element of the book, that there had to be this very active narrator who was kind of putting these pieces together. Mm. And so after that, I started writing compressed 100-page versions to try to figure out the layering because so much of this book works on the images piling up. And the only way to do that a real outline collapsed it. The only way to do that was to write almost like I was telling a movie and fast forward. So I did a couple hundred page versions of those. I threw that away. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I tried again, and then I tried again, and I tried again. And just eventually I started to understand what in the subconscious connections I was making was actually important and what was extraneous. And then I had to build a structure that would make sense on top of that. So I could include those impulses, but then there had to be an interior logic to the story. So then I thought about, okay, what interior logic, what architecture is that leading me towards that will still capture things? And I'll say a big balance for me was how much is the narrator going to acknowledge that she's telling a story? Because those kinds of intrusions can be annoying and can interrupt the fictive dream for the reader, but can also be what tells the reader, hey, there's a reason I'm doing this right now. Um, And so figuring that out, where the narrator should acknowledge what she was doing structurally and where she needed to kind of fade back and kind of try to let the magic do its work, you know, um, was a big thing I had to figure out. Um, And interestingly, to me at least, (laughs) uh, that was something that my editor and I had to go back and forth a lot on because we got to know the story so well that our inclination, and I think always his inclination, was to take out those signals but then I'd have moments like um, when I was recording the audiobook, I realized we had cut a line from the part of section two that you actually needed to understand why I was doing this in section two, but that we were so used to what I was doing that we hadn't thought we needed it. Only in kind of recording it and that feeling of what it was like to tell the story anew to somebody did I realize I needed it. Wow. So yeah. then you went back and made some other changes? Uh, I really lucked out in the audiobook. In production, they had accidentally, for the script for the audiobook, inserted uh, two versions of the same scene that hadn't been there in the galleys, but was inserted then. And then I got to make so many changes. 
<laughs> so, Whispering so nobody great. hears you. That's great. Yeah. It, the you know the one other thing I I noticed is that in that last section in the first two sections of the book you date every chapter. It, there's a month and a year or months and years, and then in the last section you don't have those dates on the chapter headings, and things begin to collide and come together more and more. Was that an intentional decision um, that you made? During that process, was that a way you always envisioned that last section of the book? I always envisioned it. Well, I mean, I've only envisioned the last section of the book as the last section of the book since the last year after I sold it. So um, I really didn't. This is another whispery thing. Don't tell my editor. But um, (laughs) when we sold the book, I didn't really understand how I was going to structure the third part of it. Um, That was a solution that had to come about in the act kind of. Basically, on the phone with my editor when he was thinking of buying the book, he pointed at a point in the proposal and was like, so in this chapter, in the third part, you're in four different time periods. How? I mean, in this, not in this chapter, sorry, in this paragraph. Oh, wow. You're in four different time periods. Because I knew the story so well that I was like, let me just make it all come together for the reader. And I kept forgetting that the reader didn't have that guidance yet, right? Um, he's like, how are you going to structure this to make this actually make sense? And I, of course, wanted him to buy the book. Mm-hmm. So on the phone, I just sort of pulled out of my ass kind of, uh, there's going to be this present day trip and it's structured in 2015. And then, then I realized, all right, I got to write a present day trip, you wow. know? Um, so that's only really been the last year that I understood that the third part would be structured that way. And it was one of those times where my subconscious saved me because that's what had to happen. And it makes total sense to me now that you need to understand why this woman is p- doing all this work and why she's putting it together. And there needs to be a mechanism to really talk to the reader about that. And that has to be a more present narrator. So I wanted the narrator to be a little bit pulled back for the first part, of two parts of the book, because I wanted it to read more like a novel. It was always really important to me to have the pages turn. And I love the feeling of a fictive dream when I'm reading a book. So it was important to me to try to capture that. But then in the third part, we really did need a narrator who was more present to sort of just explain to the reader why we'd just done all this. Well, you achieved that. I mean, it is propulsive reading. It's the kind of thing that's hard to put down. You have a lot of these sort of uh, endings of chapters that go like, wait a second, and you need to keep reading. So uh, thank you. Success. Contradiction in various forms runs through this book. You you have a, a, a mother of a murdered boy who then kind of goes to bat for him on the stand. You have... Goes to bat for his killer. It goes to yes, goes to bat for his killer, basically, and and so there's that major contradiction. There's the activists in the town who work so hard to get a new law passed to have sex offenders uh, in a registry, and that winds up having really no impact. Um, and then there's the way people in your own family experience the same events, and some have a completely different take on how to remember it. So, what sort of explanations do you have for? these contradictions that you uncovered in the writing of this book? You know, when I was going to law school, I went in part to try to smooth out the contradictions in my own thought. I was really troubled um, by my differing views in different areas of the law, and I wanted to have some thought system that would make it all make sense to me, that I thought that consistency, rather than being uh, quote, the hobgoblin of small minds, um, was what I was aspiring to in kind of a methodology of thought. And 
emotion doesn't work that way. And we humans don't really work that way. Um, in fact, we hold contradicting ideas and we must hold contradicting ideas at the same time. And yet it seemed to me that this complex story in its many tellings in many forms, because the media told it many ways in the trials, there were three different trials over 20 years, um, that the crime story was told many different ways. Um, in my family, it was told many different ways. And often the impulse behind these tellings was actually, I realized, to smooth out the contradictions. So, for example, in my family, my grandfather was never allowed to be viewed as both a child molester and a grandfather. My family tried to really suppress, very actively tried to suppress, uh, us even being allowed to acknowledge that he had molested us and kind of make him into just a grandfather. I, my body remembered so strongly what had happened that I, I couldn't do that. And I couldn't see him as my grandfather. I only really, for many years, only saw him as the man who had molested me. The same thing happened in the trial, I think, in many ways. Um, either Ricky Lingley was framed by the prosecution as this evil, evil child molester and killer, or the defense would frame him as someone who in many ways, because of his life circumstances, um, had kind of been led to this, had been left, left left with no other option for existence, had tried and tried, but had, had sort of failed to save himself and the system had failed to save him. You know, it's not an either or. In both arenas, both of these things are true. Ricky Langley is a pedophile and a child molester, and he's also a man, you know, he's also a person. My grandfather is both the was both a grandfather and a child molester. And so embracing contradiction and trying to tell a story that allowed for contradiction and resisting the tendency of both the law and I think ourselves, and we want to feel safe and comfortable <laughs> um, to smooth out for contradictions or ignore them uh, became some mission of the book to sort of resist that and to tell a story where you would be turning the pages and it would still feel emotionally satisfying, but where we ended up emotionally would be having to understand that life is full of contradictions. Yes. And I think that's one of the things that really pulls the reader into the book and lends credence to your narration. In fact, one of the th contradictions we didn't just mention is the fact that the whole reason you went to law school was because of your opposition to the death penalty and how meeting Ricky and hearing that confession, watching that taped confession, changed that for you. I'm wondering where you're at on the death penalty now. Changed that temporarily, I'd say. Um, mm -hmm. So I wanted him to die, but I never lost my fundamental opposition to the death penalty. And now, of course, I don't want him to die. Um, you know, looking closely at this case and looking closely how in three trials over 20 years, still things that are crucial for how we understand this crime or what sense we make of Ricky and what we think should happen to him, many things were never, never resolved. Um, you wouldn't know that from looking at the legal narrative because the legal narrative tends to smooth over things. But I knew it from looking at, you know, 30,000 pages of files, not all of which made it into the courtroom. I knew much more than the jury did. And that was really telling to me because if this was a relatively simple murder and that there's no question who did it, and yet all these crazy things happened in the trial. Um, I'm not going to give anything away, but there's a lot of weirdness that happens with the judge. Um, people made decisions in the trial based on who they are, you know. And also, 
with these three trials, it's worth noting that the first trial, Ricky Lingley was sentenced to death really quickly, three hours. The second trial, he was given a life sentence. Same crime, just different people doing the judging. And so if we accept that, if we accept how idiosyncratic judgment is, if we accept how personal and how subjective judgment is, I don't see how we possibly support a death penalty. Because that suggests what actually does happen, which is that two people for the same crime, one person can lose their life and one person not, not based on who they are, but based on who the people judging them you know, are. Hmm. And that violates a fundamental principle of the law, which is this idea of consistency in the law. So I, I, I came away, I, it would be hard to say more opposed to the death penalty because I've always been extremely opposed to it. But um, to see firsthand that everyone involved in this process is just a person and is intensely fallible and that there is no perfect reasoning moment in judgment in the law. How do you then do something so irreversible as taking someone's life? And I should add, too, I also saw the impact of the process on other people. So um, just being asked to make that decision really haunted the judge, even though he was just overseeing it, but it haunted him. And the jurors, it haunted them, too, to be asked to make that decision. And I, I think we don't talk enough about that, about the emotional cost of the system we have built. Um, we know, for example, this didn't make it into the book because it, it wasn't relevant for the book, really. But we know, for example, that it has profound emotional impacts on, on wardens, on prison officials, things like that. And I don't think we've ever culturally asked ourselves, hey, if it's doing all this damage to other people, is it worth it to kill this one person? Hmm. Um, and so that once you start thinking that everyone in this system is a person, I think it really complicates the idea of having a death penalty. Let's talk about truth in nonfiction. Uh, some people have mentioned your book, The Fact of a Body in the Same Breath as Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. I can see why they might do that. And that's pretty good company to keep. Uh, I also see a lot of differences between your book and his. Um, he got in. He received a lot of criticism for making up facts and scenes and dialogue. And when you imagine something in this book, you make it very clear to the reader that you're doing so. You have various techniques and alerts that you sort of send to the reader and say, like, this is me trying to imagine what it was like to be there that day when you weren't. So I wonder if you could say more about how you arrived at that approach and to what degree Capote and others might have been in the back of your heads as you developed that approach. So I love In Cold Blood, obviously, but I'm really troubled by the idea that Capote didn't acknowledge that he was doing that. And I'm really troubled by the intimation that he may have been trying to make the story quote-unquote better, that that's how he was imagining. Um, I'm also really troubled that he didn't acknowledge his personal stake in the story or why he saw it the way he did. I understand why he didn't. That's not the kind of book he was trying to write. But it shaped his angle of vision. And I knew from the start that part of this story was about how my past had influenced my angle of vision. So my narrator was going to be need to be way more upfront about that than um, Capote was. In fact, in the process of talking to uh, editors and um, other people, publishers, I would sometimes describe this book as um, like in cold blood, but if Capote had been honest about his personal stake in the story. Right. <laughs> and that meant needing to figure out how the narrator 
could do that, could be honest about it. When I started to realize that that was a crucial part of the story was actually when I got the court records. Because prior to that point, I had sort of thought that there was something wrong that I was seeing this case through the lens of my own past. And that what the law really required me to do was to leave that behind. And so my original impulse in getting the records was to sort of cure myself of seeing my past in it. I wanted to know what had happened so that I could just understand it on its own. And what I found in the records instead really shocked me. One of the things I found was that all these different people whose lives had been touched by this crime had actually seen it through the lens of their own past. So the jury foreman looked at Ricky Langley and he saw his brother-in-law. The lead defense attorney looked at Ricky Langley and he saw his father. The judge, I think even Laura Laguilera herself, but I would not presume to absolutely assert that, um, many, many different people. And the jurors would talk about their past and things like that. And that makes total intuitive sense, right? Of course, we understand other people through the lens of our own lives. Of course, we wouldn't be able to leave that behind when we enter a courtroom. And yet we've built ourselves a legal system that more or less pretends that we don't do that. And so I realized that that was what the story was in many ways. And that therefore, the way I was doing that, the way I was reading it through the lens of my own life was actually a crucial element of the book. And so that's when I started to realize, okay, um, the way that when I read these court records, they come alive for me. And yet I know that the way that they come alive for me imagistically is deeply subjective and deeply has to do with my own life. I'm going to have to write in a mechanism that brings the reader into that imagining, but also always acknowledges that that's what I'm doing. I was also really careful to make sure, um, and I wish people would read the source note more carefully when they read the book, to make sure to note that you know when there's dialogue in the book, I didn't invent it. Like somebody has a record somewhere that says that they said this. You know, there's nothing invented in the book. It's more just I'm reading these records, and as happens when we read anything, it's coming to life in my mind, and I'm showing the reader that, and I'm showing the reader how my past is influencing the way it's coming to life for me. So to my mind, nonfiction with imagined scenes is still nonfiction as long as it acknowledges that it has the imagining. Right. Sort of disclosure is what you owe to your reader. And so I, I tried to make sure that I built that mechanism into the book, in, both in terms of the narrator's voice, in terms of these acknowledgments that you mentioned, I imagine, I see when I think of that time, et cetera, mm-hmm. um, and in terms of the source notes at the back of the book. So what's next for you, Alexandria? Well, I seem to not be done with this obsession with the question of how we make stories out of the past. Uh, And accordingly, I have been spending a lot of time in Cambodia lately, um, really thinking about that question, really trying to learn because, of course, that's not my culture. Um, But I have been doing interviews at the International Criminal Tribunal. um, And I've also been sitting in on trainings for teachers and how to teach about the genocide. And I know me even using that word is controversial, but I'm going to call it that. Um, And that's been really interesting because I think in the U.S. we kind of take for granted that our narrative about the past is made in three main ways. It's made in the legal system, it's made in the media, and I think it's made in educational curricula. And this is how we sort of collectively formulate these narratives about our collective past. Um, And Cambodia is in a situation where All three things were in gear, and then something very devastating happened for many, many years, and the country still hasn't, I think anybody would say the country still hasn't entirely recovered if we ever 
collectively recover from such things. Um, and those three narrative-making forms are are still in play, are still in operation, are still trying to figure out what that narrative will be. So, uh, like I said, the International Criminal Tribunal, although I've been really struck by how differently that's perceived in the West than it is perceived locally. Um, and then this question of educational curricula. You know, a lot of um, these teachers who are in the trainings uh, are 19, 20, right? Um, and they're learning how to teach the genocide in school curricula, but they're also learning in that same moment about the genocide because for many of them, the genocide is a rumor. Mm. It's like too big to wrap their minds around, but also it hasn't been spoken of. And so I'm, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing, except that I do have deadlines um, for various aspects of that inquiry, little articles and stuff. Um, and so I, I don't know quite where it's going because I tend to be an exploratory writer who takes a damn long time on everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that seems to be what I'm, I'm doing right now is just trying to learn. Mm. There are also many things I didn't write about during the course of writing this book, like many ideas that percolated and then had to die because I just had to devote all my time to this. And so then I'm returning to them. So you're you're at the same time you're pursuing this Cambodia project. You're also writing some other personal essays, writing some other fiction. Yeah, I had this very peculiar experience last summer um, where I dissected a human cadaver. Wow! And why <laughs> would you wind up doing that, Alexandria? Um, you know, the opportunity arose, <laughs> and um, as it does, <laughs> as it does, and uh, I had just spent so long thinking for this book about a murder and about what happened to the body. I had just seen Jeremy Guillory's autopsy photographs fairly recently when this opportunity arose and was thinking a lot about the body as strong and vulnerable at the same time and precarious in some ways. Um, and I was also thinking about embodiment, like where are we exactly? <laughs> um and so I decided to do it because the opportunity arose. Um, and I would say it was probably the most, to me, the most important thing I've ever done in my life, possibly. Um, but also in a deep way, probably the most traumatic. <laughs> I can imagine. And I'm still figuring that out. I'm still trying to absorb why I did that and what writing is coming from that. Because some writing will be coming from that. But it's taken me a year to even get ready. Still need to absorb what you went through there, it sounds like. Yeah, it was, um, you know, as someone who's so attached to the question of the way we hold stories and the way we make stories out of our own lives, to hold a brain freshly lifted from the back of someone's skull, someone right in front of me, um, and try to hold in my mind that all she'd been was in here, but also not. Uh, I don't know what to do with that. Wow. We've all got little pink blobs in our heads, right? <laughs> <laughs> we are meat. <laughs> True enough. Well, that sounds like the perfect way to end a conversation about a book called The Fact of a Body. Yes. Talking about the brain in one's hands. Alexandria Marzano Lesnovich, congratulations on the book, and thanks for taking the time to talk about it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This was a pleasure. You'll learn more at alexandriamarzanolesnovich.com. The Fact of a Body is now out in paperback. You'll find show notes and links for this episode and others at themedianarrative.com. This episode was edited and mixed by Isaac Kotecki. The theme music was composed and recorded by Matt Jensen. I'm Rob Hoschel. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.